Well, it is good to be with all of you this morning and to see some new faces, some familiar faces. Just a great joy to gather together as a body of believers in this, in this building, in this place, in this town. Just a great blessing to my heart, certainly. In 1647, more than 120 English and Scottish pastors and theologians published perhaps the greatest articulation of Christian doctrine ever written in the English language known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. Along with their confession, the Westminster Divines also published a catechism designed to teach the truth that was contained in the statement. However, before addressing any specific point of doctrine, the catechism opens by asking this poignant question. Here's the very first question of the catechism. What is the chief end of man? Inerrant in in the question is the consideration for why we were created. Furthermore, what is the meaning of life? And people ask that question all the time. I don't know know why I'm here. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose? Why, Why do we exist? To which the catechism provides the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This one statement encapsulates the whole of human existence. We all, unbelievers, believers, everyone, every single human being on planet earth who's ever lived, exists to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But is this what the scriptures teach? Just a couple of examples. Psalm 73 declares in verses 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The Apostle Paul similarly applies this truth in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Even Scripture echoes this refrain. Again, all things, all things are to be done for God's glory. This includes committing our marriages, our families, our jobs, our money, our time, our gifts, our hobbies, our leisure, everything, our whole lives, all things to the glory of God, as we see in Romans 11.36, for from him and, to, and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. But of course, this is part of the Christian struggle, isn't it? To submit all things to the Lord. Because we struggle, we all struggle with being holy and completely devoted to him in heart, mind, body, and spirit. Sometimes it is our own fleshliness and selfishness that keeps us from surrendering ourselves to him. Our allegiance becomes divided between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of self. And this is a huge problem, isn't it? But other times we feel our allegiance being divided because of other things, things that may not themselves be bad things. And so the challenge for us is to live in such a way where our allegiance is not divided, where we can truly and fully devote ourselves to God in all things, even in the normal and mundane elements of life. But here's the thing, God helps us. He gives us gifts. Now, to be clear, every single Christian, all Christians have spiritual gifts. But for some believers, the Lord has given them a special opportunity for devotion, 
through the gift of singleness. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So turn over in your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 19. We are working our way through an exposition of the Gospel of Matthew. One of the things I love about expository preaching, I feel like I do this every week. I advertise for why expository preaching is the best way to deliver the Scriptures. But one of the benefits, I believe, is because uh, we end up covering things that we wouldn't otherwise cover if we had just took in a vote and saying, hey, let's go talk about this today. It forces us to examine every single aspect of what God gives us, his, the, the full counsel of the word of God. And so I love that. I love that we get to talk about things that maybe you've never even heard a sermon preached on before. I, I can't think I've heard too many sermons on this topic, but I think this is going to be helpful and instructive because the word of God is always applicable and helpful and efficient for us. Now, the events of this morning's text come on the heels of the Pharisees' confrontation with Jesus over the issue of divorce. In subscribing to the liberal philosophy of Rabbi Hillel, the religious leaders of Israel, they believed that they were permitted to divorce their wives for any cause, any reason at all, and marry someone new to their heart's content. And this caused them to do this over and over and over again. And in their hardness of heart, really, they became serial adulterers. But they come to Jesus, knowing he doesn't agree with them, but they're coming to him in hopes of discrediting him publicly and portraying him as reasoning against the scriptures. And we've spent the last several weeks talking about that. And so just to refresh where we are here, Matthew chapter 19, I want to just back up and read the passage we've been working through, and then we're going to get into the today's passage. But here's the, backward, uh, the background context here. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, well, why then did Moses give, her, give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Or why did he command us to do that, he says. In verse 8, he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Again, Jesus here is articulating God's design and desire for marriage, followed by the biblical restrictions for divorce. Of course, you might imagine that the Pharisees, they didn't leave happy. They walked away most likely very upset because they're going to go away and try to find another way to destroy him later on. But according to Mark chapter 10, verse 10, the disciples then followed Jesus into a house and they begin to ask him more questions after that discourse. And it was in this setting, more privately, that the disciples make the following statement that is recorded starting in verse 10. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who made, were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who was able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, at face value, this actually 
it's a fairly humorous statement from the apostles, or from the disciples, I should say. Because essentially what they're saying is they hear this you know, very challenging teaching from the Lord, and they're basically saying this, if marriage is this complicated, this troublesome, why bother get married at all? This has been the sentiment of many people over the years. I don't want to deal with the headache. I don't want to deal with all, the, all that goes along with it. But I think this bears further examination because you have to remember, too, that the prevailing teaching in Israel was the Hillelite uh, version of, uh, or I should say, argument for divorce. You could just divorce for any reason. So the, the disciples had likely grown up under the impression that they were able to divorce their wife for any reason at all and then find someone else new. And so Jesus' teaching would have felt very restrictive for them. It would have sort of woken them up a little bit. Wait a second, you mean I'm supposed to marry her for life? Yes, you are. Now, as far as we know, Peter was the only one who was married in the group. We know this at least for the fact that Jesus heals his mother-in-law in in Matthew 8.15. So the fact that he has a mother-in-law means he's got a wife. But the rest of the group is most likely a young group of single men who are considering possibly the prospect of marriage, but maybe now they're rethinking it a little bit. So what's behind their question? Because they hear Jesus articulate this concept of the one flesh union and tell them about the mandate to stay married, and suddenly they realize that if they marry somebody, it is entirely possible, as long as there's no gross immorality or any kind of a you know, covenant-breaking, massive kind of a thing here, that basically what the Lord is teaching them is that they have to stay married to their spouse for the rest of their life. There's a possibility for them that they could end up stuck in a bad marriage. And so this is, they would have been worried about this, maybe feeling trapped. Of course, this wasn't a concern for them when they believed the Hillelite version of the interpretation, but now they're becoming concerned. And so they say to the Lord, if the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, well, maybe it's better not to marry. Don't get married at all. How does Jesus answer them? Now, does he say to them, oh, no, you guys are fine. You misunderstood. Marriage is great. Just hang in there. You'll be fine. You guys, you guys, the rest of the world maybe not, but you guys will be fine. Does he do that? Does he defend marriage at this point? No, look what he does in verse 11. He said to them, well, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. This is very interesting because didn't he just go on and on and on about the blessings and the joys? And I mean, I'm, I'm elaborating here, but... I mean, the design of marriage being a wonderful thing, a good thing, a one-flesh union. We know from other passages like Ephesians chapter 5, it's a blessed union, a mysterious union, a wonderful union. Now, scholars have even examined this phrase when he says this statement. This statement is hard to accept. One of two ways. Either it's a reference to Jesus' teaching in verses 4 through 9, or it's a reference to their statement in verse 10. Now, considering the explanation he's about to give in verse 12, I believe he's addressing uh, the statement of verse 10 directly. In other words, he's not teaching that his teaching about marriage and divorce and remarriage is up for discussion. He's not saying, if you can accept my teaching on divorce and remarriage. Rather, we understand that the teaching about marriage is binding whether you accept it or not. I mean, Jesus has his desire and design for marriage that's, that's set in heaven. But this notion of being better not to marry, that's the statement that's up for grabs. That's why he's saying you can or cannot accept the statement about whether or not it's good to be married. 
But more specifically, the Greek word that's used here that's translated better is simpharo in the Greek, and it really means profitable or expedient or advantageous. So for some, not marrying is better for them, as we'll see. But for other people, it's not better. For example, when my wife found me, when she first found me, I weigh 140 pounds, I worked second shift, lived in a studio apartment, I lived off soda and Easy Mac. My apartment had this on it, a mattress on the floor, a TV, a beanbag chair, and a wall full of DVDs. I was a sad man. So when she found me, it was pretty pathetic. So for me, for me, singleness is not expedient. In fact, if I was not married, I'd probably be wandering around graveyards looking at graves. Actually, I'd do that now, so forget it. Forget it. The point is, is that you have to know, like, for it's not good for a man to be alone. That's not just a general maxim for many people, for many men, for many women. It is not good for them to be by themselves for their whole lifetime. So for many people, it's not expedient. But that's why Jesus says not all men can accept this concept of being single. Of course, one key element of what he's talking about, and we're going to explore this a little bit this morning, is the desire for physical intimacy. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immorality, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Furthermore, he says in verse 9 of the same passage, for those who are single, and if they do not have self-control, he says, let them marry. For it's better for them to marry than to burn with passion or desire. And so if you're a person for whom celibacy would be difficult, if that would be a challenge, if that's not desirable for you, then singleness is probably not for you. However, Jesus notes that those who are able to accept celibacy and singleness, if that's been given to them, then they can live a life that way. Or to say it another way, God has given the gift of singleness to some. Again, the Apostle Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. He says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And he's referring to single. Paul at this point was not single. Now, we don't know if Paul was widowed, because generally speaking, most uh, Pharisees, most uh, rabbis would have the expectation for them to be married when they were younger. So it's possible Paul got married and then he lost his wife and then he remained single for the rest of his life. We don't really know the situation, but we know that when Paul is writing his letters, he is not married. So he says, I wish that all of you were single just as, as I am. He says, he continues though, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And so he concurs with Jesus that singleness is a specific gift from God. Now, this has led some in the course of history to believe and teach that God somehow holds singleness as being better than married life. In fact, the early church believed this by and large. In fact, many devoted Christians, they became monks, monastics. They, they, they left the cities, they went out into the caves and in the wilderness and they thought that by doing so and living a single, solitary life, that they were living a higher life in Christ. However, what, became, what began as an aspiration soon became a mandate. And we know from church history that the Roman Catholic Church eventually decreed that priests and those in special service to God were prohibited from marrying anybody. But that doesn't honor God either. 
Remember, God created marriage and has blessed it. Furthermore, we heard about this this morning already in this, in this the scripture reading from 1 Timothy 4.3 states that, that the practice of forbidding marriage is actually demonic. You're not allowed to tell people you can't get married. You can't pressure them and say, oh, it's a higher life, a better calling if you're single versus being married. The Lord says that's actually the doctrines of demons. Don't do that. God loves marriage and so should the church. But again, for some For some, it is not desirable for them to be married. And in those cases, God grants them the gift of singleness. Well, how does he do that? How does he grant them this gift? Well, generally speaking, it might involve things like this. Maybe he lessens or removes the desire for sexual activity. Or he takes away the desire to want to have their own children. Or he gives them a settled peace in being by themselves without the need for constant companionship. And expanding this notion of singleness and celibacy, the Lord even continues beyond this. He says in verse 12, I'm in Matthew 19 here again. Matthew 19, 12, Jesus says, For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, And then he says, he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, we have to admit together here that this verse is awkward to hear. But I will tell you that this was just as awkward for Jesus' hearers as well. See, in ancient Israel, eunuchs were not desirable people, meaning that they were oftentimes looked at either with pity or with scorn. Well, why is that? Why, Why was a eunuch looked at so poorly? Well, there's a couple places in Scripture that actually talk about this. In Deuteronomy 23.1, it commands that no one who is emasculated or who has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, scholars believe that the reason behind this prohibition has to do with keeping the Israelites from following the pagans who practiced such a thing of self-emasculation. Furthermore, Leviticus 21.20 forbids eunuchs from serving as priests. And so Israel had biblical reasons for feeling awkward about this, but Jesus intends to delineate between various types of eunuchs and then remove the stigma and talk about God's blessing to some of them. First he notes, there's again three different categories here. The first one he notes is this. He says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. This refers to those who are either born impotent, they were unable to have children, or they were born with damaged sexual organs. Keep in mind here, the prohibition in Deuteronomy 23 does not apply to those who are born that way, but only those who had maimed or emasculated themselves. So there's a delineation there. Which brings us to the second type. He says, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. This oftentimes would occur in that culture, servants who were castrated because they were serving in harems. If you wanted to have a servant who attended a group of women in your employ and you didn't want the young men causing problems, you would castrate them and they would have no desire at all for the women and they could serve unhindered. But again, keep in mind the Lord doesn't ever sanction this practice. He simply talks about the reality of what's currently existing in the world. The Lord doesn't desire that for anyone, just so you know. But in addition to that, there were also other reasons why they would do this kind of a thing. 
Several ancient pagan religions practiced self-castration in order to satisfy certain pagan gods. And so again, this is not a, a Christian practice. This is a very pagan practice of doing something like that to yourself. But then he addresses a third group. And he says, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now what is this? We can be sure that the early church father Origen was sadly mistaken when he took this verse literally and castrated himself for the sake of the kingdom. But rather, we are to understand that what Jesus is talking about is a figurative statement here. Those who made themselves eunuchs, that certainly refers to their practice of living in such a way as though they were completely celibate. They chose to be celibate for the kingdom of God. They do not engage in any kind of sexual activity, and they have made themselves this way for the sake of the kingdom. There, are, there is a modern culture that we live in today that has completely missed the mark with regard to singleness. Even today, right now, there are many, many, many people who reject marriage, but they don't do it because they're embracing celibacy. Rather, they do it so they can be promiscuous. There's a huge movement, and many, many people, what we call hookup culture, people who never, ever get married, they just keep on practicing this self-gratification, and they think that there's some kind of joy, ultimate joy in doing so. But that is not the Bible's desire at all for singleness. In fact, quite the opposite. The Bible clearly says that any sexual activity outside of marriage is considered fornication and is sinful. And so singleness is always to be met with celibacy. Sexual activity, that is for marriage. It's always been God's design, and that even is his design today. But he says here, there are those who have made themselves figurative eunuchs. They have voluntarily chosen to be celibate. For what purpose? What is the purpose of doing such a thing? Here he says, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. How, then, is the commitment to singleness and celibacy a virtue for the kingdom of heaven? Well, it is done so in order that a person might devote themselves completely to the Lord. Turn with me in your copy of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. In recent weeks, we have gone to this chapter several times due to its applications of Jesus' teaching on marriage. Now, 1 Corinthians as a whole letter altogether, if you remember, it's a letter that's full of correction and counsel. This is really correcting a church that has many, many challenges. And chapter 7 addresses several issues pertaining to marriage and divorce and widowhood and singleness. Now, the Apostle Paul has already argued in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, for the right to marry. He says, am I not allowed to take with me a, a believing spouse? So he argues for his right to go get married. He doesn't, he's not required to remain single to be in the ministry. So he establishes that right later in chapter 9. But as we saw earlier in verse 7 of this chapter, he regards his own singleness as being a gift from God, and actually he regards it as being desirable and beneficial to himself. What is his rationale for seeing Christian singleness this way? Well, let's pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 25. 
Now again, Paul is jumping into the whole middle of a wave of teaching here, but verse 25, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in the view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. Now, again, we looked briefly at these verses last time for a different purpose. We were looking at a different application of this verse. But here he's dealing with virgins, those who have never engaged in sexual activity at all. Now, Paul doesn't offer a command to them, but rather he offers some trustworthy and wise counsel. And he counsels virgins in verse 26 to remain as they are, essentially. Now, Paul's not downing marriage. He doesn't go from talking about the blessings of marriage in the previous verses and shift his tune and start talking marriage down. But he specifically notes in verse 28 that there is no harm in getting married. He says, you can get married. That's not a sin. That's not bad. It's a blessing of God. But then he adds at the end of verse 28, yet, those who get married, he's talking about, yet, such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Now, before you think that Paul's taking a cheap shot at marriage, he's not, but rather you have to remember that there's a lot going on in this passage. At this time in church history, Christians were under persecution. They were for the first three centuries of the church. And there are times of great turmoil, War, famine, persecution, there are times and seasons of great turmoil when having a a marriage and a family and having the responsibilities of marriage and family as a layer of stress and burden to an already difficult situation. Imagine going through a widespread famine across your whole country or even the whole world or dealing with starvation and then having to consider caring for your wife and your children. That adds another layer of complexity, another layer of difficulty, doesn't it? But even in normal, non-catastrophic times, marriage can bring about a measure of trouble. Why? Well, because it's bad enough that you yourself are a sinner. Now you're going to go join yourself to another sinner. And hilarity ensues, right? No, it gets difficult, doesn't it? Because not only is your own sinfulness exposed because they see you and tell you about it, but then you see their sinfulness, and it can create a lot of problems. It's, oftentimes it's easier and better living with yourselves. I mean, I'm kind of used to my own depravity in my own life. I can kind of live with myself. But I live with someone else who has a different challenge of sin, and it does raise problems. There's conflict. There's disagreement. There's personality clashes. You add in family to that, and there's more challenges, right? This is not terrible. It's just the way it is. And so Paul, he's trying to, what he's trying to do is save a person from the challenges and responsibilities of marriage, especially if they're not so sure they want to be married. If a person gets sort of you know, uh, uh, manipulated into being married or say they're kind of convinced and they don't really want to be married, they're not so sure, and they kind of naively jump into marriage, and all of a sudden, everything kind of starts to change for them, and they're not ready for it, it can be really challenging. Now, again, I tend to think that marriage is a pretty great thing. I love marriage. I try to convince everybody to get married. It's just kind of my thing. But it's important for us to remember that marriage isn't for everybody. 
It's just not. And with Paul, we agree with Paul, it's important that those who desire singleness are met with encouragement and not with guilt and shame. And I think, we, I think a lot of people tend to, to lean that way without really realizing what they're doing. We all want to play matchmaker to our single friends, and there's, there's an, an element where that can be really good. I remember talking to a friend of ours who was convinced he had the gift of singleness, and then about a year later he met the woman of his dreams, and well, there, there goes that. Now he's married with a couple of kids, and it's great. And you kind of go, see, I knew he was going to get married. But again, that's not for everybody. It's just not. And that's okay. And I think that just like Jesus is removing stigma in the biblical times, we have to do the same thing in the church. For those who don't desire marriage, that's not a bad thing. In fact, they're going to be spared some of the trouble that the rest of the, sing- of the married people have if they remain single without having to get married. But I want to offer a caution here. I want to caution you, especially if you're a person who is single and contemplating being single. Don't let yourself be influenced by the world's hatred of marriage. Because right now the world is down on marriage. They hate marriage. See, Satan, he hates marriage. He hates family. He hates children because he hates God and he hates all image bearers of God. In fact, I've seen a large uptick even in the Christian community about those young Christians who are spurning marriage. And I believe that some of them may be doing it because they're being swept up in the world's culture, the world's uh, disdain for marriage. And so they, they, they sort of make it, they make it a virtue to, to despise marriage. And so caution, I want to caution you away from that. If that's sort of your heart's sort of bitterness toward the institution of marriage, be very, very careful. Don't let yourself go that way. I would encourage you to examine your motives if you're desiring singleness. And if your motives are godly, and God gives you a desire to be single, then that may in fact be a gift from God, and receive it as a gift from God, as a good thing. Moving on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 31, Paul continues, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, For the form of this world is passing away. Now, what is he talking about here? Now, without digging into all the exegesis of the entire thing, it's important to note here that Paul is essentially speaking about the passing nature of life. And he addresses five key areas of life. He addresses marriage in verse 29, sorrow in verse 30, uh, rejoicing in verse 30, possessions in verse 30, and then pleasure in verse 31. Now, keep in mind of what he's doing in his, the flow of his argument here. He's talking about marriage and then singleness and the fleeting, passing pleasures of life. And he's saying, look, even marriage is fleeting. Marriage is not for forever here. Marriage is fleeting. Sorrow is fleeting. Rejoicing is fleeting. Having things, possessions, that's fleeting. Your pleasure-seeking, that's fleeting. The sense given here is that All these things belong to a world that is passing away, even marriage, believe it or not. Therefore, he says, this is the argument, don't hyper-focus on any one of them. Don't make an idol out of being married. Don't make an idol out of anything in this life that is passing away. Rather, verse 32, 
Paul says, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are, interest are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you. He's not downing marriage. Keep this in mind. But to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. I want to camp out on that phrase. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. And there it is. That's the whole point of this whole thing. Paul is not mandating singleness. He's not tearing down marriage. He says, I'm not giving you a command. I'm not oppressing you with some kind of thing that says, well, because marriage is fleeting, just don't worry about it. He's not saying that at all. Instead, he is encouraging believers to focus on devoting themselves to the Lord. Married, single, widowed, it doesn't matter. Devote yourself to the Lord. Can you be married and devoted to the Lord? Well, of course you can, and you should be. But you will have to work harder than a person who is not married due to the responsibilities to your spouse and to your family. A single Christian is more free to offer undistracted devotion to the Lord. They just can. I've known many, many, many those ministers in, in a, a full-time ministry. They're not married. They don't have any children, no responsibilities. And they just up and they go anywhere they want to go, anywhere they're led by the Lord. And they just minister from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed. And they just do all things for the glory of God. And that's a wonderful thing. They can study their Bible and pray all day without needing to help uh, care for their spouse or their children. They can evangelize in the late hours of night without having to be home for dinner. This is why Paul, I believe, enjoys his singleness. He's happy because he could minister in ways that other people couldn't minister. With complete unhindered devotion to the Lord all the times he was awake. However, again, this is not for everybody. Not everybody can do this. It's challenging for many people, which is why Jesus says at the end of Matthew 19, 12, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Furthermore, Romans 14, 5 says, every person needs to be fully convinced in their own mind. This is not pressure to get married or not to get married. The Lord has to work in you and bring you to a point where you are convinced and convicted and accepting of whatever station of life that you're in. To be married, then be married and do it well. To be single, do that well and be devoted to God. Now, the question then arises, what if you're single and want to be married? Well, first of all, I would say this, don't be anxious for your life. Oftentimes, when a potential spouse that you might have sees your desperation, it can be a deterrent. They know that you're desiring marriage and it can actually scare a spouse away. Furthermore, that doesn't demonstrate trust in the Lord if you're so nervous and worried about, I need to find a spouse. And so rather, I would encourage you, don't waste your singleness. 
If God gives you a season of being single, don't waste it. Use this season to dig deep into the things of God. Let this be sort of a hothouse, a garden house for your spiritual growth. Pursue holiness and Christ-likeness, not for the purpose of attracting a spouse, but for the purpose of growing closer to the Lord. And if God grants your desire to be married, your godly character will become very attractive to a Christian spouse. There is nothing more attractive to a Christian than a godly spouse. Amen, right? That's the most attractive thing about believers who are married is their godly character. I think about Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And the truth is also for the men as well. They can be handsome, they can be enterprising, they can have a great job, but in the end, money and looks don't get it done. Godly character will. Godly character will sustain a marriage, it will sustain family. And so don't chase a spouse, chase Christ's likeness. And trust that God will provide what is best for you. What about young adults and teenagers? Maybe those who may get married in the future, but they're not close to being married just yet. Well, I would give you the same advice. Spend these years getting to know the Lord. Don't waste. They always say youth is wasted on the young. Well, don't waste it. Study your Bible. Learn doctrine. Serve the church. Get involved in Christian community. Learn how to evangelize. Make lots of godly friends. God will honor your singleness if you honor him with your singleness. And don't buy the the world's lie that selfishness and fleshliness will bring you joy because it won't. It will only bring regret. Trust in the God for your future. And finally, to those to whom God has given the gift of singleness... Here is my exhortation to you. Use your life to bring glory to God. Don't waste your life chasing things for yourself. Because that's what a lot of people do. They don't want to get married, and so they just fill up their own life with their own pleasures. They live for themselves. And by doing so, they waste their life. Don't do that. Instead, get busy knowing God and loving His people. Devote your heart and your mind to the Lord as well as your body. Romans 12.1 says that this becomes your spiritual service of worship. And if you belong to Christ, don't belong to another, including to yourself. Belong to Him. And remember that even Jesus lived this kind of life. Unmarried, devoted, selfless, and pure. Let Christ be your model in every aspect of your life. And one day, when you see him in glory, you'll be able to offer up a lifetime that was dedicated completely to his service. And that is truly a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you, Lord, are worthy of glory and worship and desire and love. That you are the great and true Most high God. And Lord, you created us to bring you glory, to delight in you, O Lord. You are the only one who is truly worthy of our worship and our delight. But Lord, sometimes, and I'd say many times, oftentimes, we let our hearts grow cold and we wander away 
And we focus on other things. We focus on ourselves or pleasures or possessions. And we take our eye off the prize. But Lord, you are the prize. And so Lord, I do pray this morning that you would encourage every single heart here to fixate their mind and their heart on glorifying you and enjoying you forever, whatever station they are in, Lord. But Father, I specifically pray for those who are not married, especially to those who are devoting themselves to a life of singleness for your glory, that you would give them an exuberance and a passion and a purity and a desire and a joy and an earnestness to run hard the race that is set before them. Why? Because that was what Christ did. And I pray that they would chase Christ-likeness. And Lord, I pray that the church at large would rally around those who are devoting themselves in such a way to encourage them and spur them on, spur them on in the faith, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would use this text to help us to see the value of chasing Christ-likeness. Lord, would you help us to live a life of undistracted devotion to you in all things. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the Spirit of God, for the Son of God, and we thank you for your own glory and presence with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.